This podcast contains some very open conversations about parenthood and mental health, so there may be some content that listeners might find triggering or upsetting. Please listen at your own discretion, and for help or support, look at the episode description for resources. And please do. Asking for help was the best thing I ever did. I'm Laura Dockrell, and this is Zombie Mum, a podcast that aims to normalise the conversation surrounding mental health and parenthood, hearing voices from the perspective of both parents and children for some empathetic, compassionate, heartbreaking, heartwarming, real talk. Bryony Kimmings is an acclaimed performance artist. Her work is investigative, challenging and inquisitive. Almost like a documentary maker, she digs deep like a forensic scientist. She is detailed, she is thorough, she doesn't miss a trick. But then she seems to parade her findings like a musical. Her work is usually dressed as a Trojan horse of some kind, sugar-coated, dusted in frosting, glitter and sequins, smeared in red lipstick, shoved in fishnets, pom-poms and a wig, and then it's got you. But do not be fooled, for the work is gut-punching, heart-twistingly raw, celebratory, emotive, full of grit, and it is funny, laugh-out-loud funny, but painful too. I've seen most of Bryony's work. She is a great inspiration of mine. But after the birth of her little boy, Frank, the lines between fact and fiction became blurred for the storyteller and artist when Bryony was faced with her greatest challenge of all, herself. Bryony had experienced a healthy pregnancy, had an established career behind her, was in a solid, loving relationship with partner Tim when the couple rented an idyllic cottage to set up their beautiful, blissful family life together. But life as it does, had other ideas. Frank was diagnosed with a rare neurological condition and Bryony began to mentally unravel. Bryony, being Bryony, didn't just survive, she thrived. And when I was just months recovering myself, I was fortunate enough to see Bryony's astounding latest piece of work, the stage show, I'm a Phoenix Bitch, in which Bryony bears all, showing literal, physical, hysterical strength, a wild tenacity, the boundless love for a child, the ferocious, unapologetic, unconditional force of a parent. You see, there is a grief of some kind when a baby is born, a desperation to want to get back to or cling to who you once were or the life you once had before you were a braless mule-carrying baby shit around. When I think back to Briny's show, how unwell I was when I saw it, clutching Hugo's hand, trembling in the pews, I'm pretty sure I saw Briny Kimmings die on stage that day, only to resurrect herself. From one zombie to another, the formidable, the incredible Briny Kimmings. Hi, Bryony. Thank you for coming and doing this. So I first met you through the lovely John Osborne, the poet, who dragged me along to the Soho Theatre saying, you've got to see this girl, you've got to see her show. And it was Seven Day Drunk at the Soho Theatre, <laughs> which was a performance piece you exploring um, the behaviours and the links, parallels between artists and their work and alcohol. And I was just mm. like 
blown away. <laughs> Can't believe also, you saw seven. I remember meeting you and me being like, you was, had these parrot earrings and this like really brightly coloured clothes. And I was like, oh, who is this little ray of light? You came right up into my face and oh my God. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, I really but- like her. <laughs> I'd wondered if we could just take it right back. How was your pregnancy? Can we start with that? Oh, we're starting there, are we? Yes, uh, please. Pregnancy. I mean, I chose to get pregnant, so that's always a slightly different experience, perhaps. So I was ecstatic, if a little anxious. I toured all the way through my pregnancy. I was in Australia doing... We were touring Fake It Till You Make It, Tim and I. Touring into Edinburgh and Brisbane and all over the shop. And then a big long one at Soho when I was eight months pregnant. It was a stressful time. I think I, if I ever did it again, which I don't think I will, I'd just chill the hell out. I was like, I must do all the things. I'm very uh, efficient. I can be on stage when I'm pregnant. And it's like, dude, your head was already starting to slip away from you and you should have just sat down. <laughs> um, Tim and I had trouble through pregnancy. We had trouble touring and it, we were arguing a lot and it was very stressful. Like, I think, I, sh- yeah, I should have slowed down and just been pregnant I think that should be a job being pregnant (laughs) yes I agree with that and um, I love so much of what you've said there that kind of need to um, still be working and active and creating Mm. as well because you know I remember thinking Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein when she was pregnant like she was so productive I mean she wrote Frankenstein when she was pregnant (laughs) she was going through pure psychosis (laughs) Um, but I I totally uh, get that and then also that thing I mean did that come up you know that stressful pregnancy because people kept asking me that after I was ill did you have a stressful pregnancy and you've said there you felt yourself almost slipping away there did do, do, do you relate the two and connect that I think that what happened was one I had a child quite late so you start getting called a geriatric which I think triggered something in me that I didn't notice but it was a, a sort of a panic and worry that I was gonna lose him or not have him and then I think also I'd established myself as an artist and been very proud of my independent career and then it was this sort of impending doom of not knowing who I was going to be afterwards I sort of buried it in my cells and I was like it's going to just go away and then I think if you particularly if you have a psychotic episode anything that you've sort of thought in a fleeting moment it sort of buries itself into your brain tissue that one anxiety or that one thought so yeah I think subconsciously things were happening Yeah, there's like a ball of anxiety, but then there's this like other little secret anxiety you're talking about that kind of switches and dances between other things that that wraps around your your brain, doesn't it? And it it can be anything. You could read the back of a box of cereal and it could say, hey, are you feeling kind of crunchy today in your brain? You'll go, great, maybe I'm crunchy. God, maybe I'm (laughs) maybe I'm crisp. (laughs) Maybe I'm a crisp now. It still happens to me like it's not I mean I'd say that you know I'm a recovered mad woman but I think it trips a switch in you I go out into the garden to smoke because I'm a dreadful smoker and every time I go out into the garden I get the worst anxiety and I come back in and I'm like a maniac and it's like you know my main vision was spiders so it's like Mm. it's spiders again it's like why am I doing this? I allow myself to go outside, look at a web, get freaked out, come back in and be highly anxious for like 15 minutes. Do that you little look for the web? Thing. Are you looking yeah, totally for the web? Like yeah. Absolutely. Because I read lots of books in my recovery and one of the books, I love it. I mean, Dr. Claire Weeks's book, Self-Help for Your Nerves, which absolutely changed my life, that book. But she says... Um, 
not about webs specifically, but she'll say, you'll be tempted, you know, like sort of like like a tongue in an ulcer to shove it, you know, and go, mm. does it still hurt? Can I still, if I search for it, can I still arouse it? Like how you're doing, you know, you're like, can I see oh, a spider wow. web? And is that self-harm or are you trying to see if you can not go there, you know? Oh. Have you still got the power of going there? Or not. It's interesting, isn't it? It is. I think it's a compulsion. Personally, I think I get stuck into the negative so much. Like, I realise that I sort of seek out negative things, shameful things, because they sort of corroborate a feeling that I have about myself that's from a very young age. You know, I do quite um, transactional analysis-based therapy with my therapist, which is all about child-learned behaviours. So it wouldn't be odd in my kind of script, is what we call it, the script of you, that I would go outside and sort of search for webs, you know. That is deep. Is it actual spiders? It's about being infested. Some people see it as insects under their skin and they claw at their skin to try and get the infestation out. And there's also a type which is that your house is infested. It doesn't have to be spiders. It can be any insect. And it's about, I suppose it's about control, and being overtaken, maybe it's a metaphor for what's happening in your brain. But mine was spiders, and I've always had a terrible problem with spiders. And as a child, I dreamt a lot of spiders and attacking me and stuff. So it's um that's my deep-seated fear, you know, to be attacked by spiders. So were they real? I think they were often triggered by... I lived in a tiny cottage, you know, very damp, tiny thatched cottage, which is riddled with spiders anyway, which is crazy. I hate spiders. Um, maybe one would appear of an evening... And then because it had appeared and I'd squashed it, I could hear all the other spiders in the house sort of saying, well, she squashed her, you know, she squashed her. She's a terrible person. We should all go and get her, you know. And then I would sort of hear their little feet. And so then I was afraid to go into different rooms and stuff. So I wouldn't say I had psychosis because I was very conscious. I didn't slip out of consciousness. Yeah, it felt like being infested with voices. Um, but I was still very able to go this is crazy, this is completely stupid, there's no spiders talking to you. But the house was silent, on the top of a hill in the middle of nowhere, I had a very sick baby upstairs, and it was like, what else was I going to fill my time with? I could have gone in down the Mad Men route, <laughs> Mad Men, <laughs> like watching the box set, <laughs> I know, I just went with but, that. <laughs> and then, like, instead I went down the, you know, the Mad Woman Route. Would you say you kind of chose then to go down the mad woman route? Yeah, I think I'm an anxious person. When I think about my life, I think, oh God, I was always an anxious person, anxious child, anxious teenager, anxious in my 20s, but never identified as an anxious person, but had habitually sought out the sort of, oh, that's terrifying. Oh my God. You know, like I suppose in the Victorian times, I would have been called someone who had a nervous disposition. And probably that's why I'm a, I'm a performer, you know, because when I step out on stage, all of that noise in my head always goes off. A very meditative state for me, even though I seem like a crazed woman, I'm like at home there because everything else switches off. And then I'll get off the stage and I'll be like, oh my God, I wonder if anyone thought it was amazing. Oh my God, what am I going to do? How do I get this makeup off? What's going to happen? Like, well, should I wash my hair tonight? What am I going to do? Should I go to the grouch? And it's like, oh my God, shut up. So I think when something bad happened, it was like my go-to to worry. But because the chemical imbalance was so depleted perhaps or had been sort of mounting up now they think I might have ADHD so that might have had something to do with it mm. I think the go-to was panic can we talk about your labor because <laughs> you sent me a message and I'll always remember that you said I think you're really going to enjoy this I really loved mine and it was such a nice message to get 
I think it's really important that you hear those ones as well. When someone is pregnant, like I know, I'm always trying to like just slightly subvert what you normally get <laughs> because it's sort of like, oh God, remember when my fanny fell out because I had a baby and my asshole yeah. fell out. And it's like, oh my God, please don't tell me that. People love doing it. I just So it's like, actually, I really enjoyed my birth. I was a bit nervous of the pain of it. And my mum was very unhelpful by sort of going, oh, I pushed mine out with a paracetamol. You know, and it's like, <laughs> oh, God, yeah, standard. off, lady. Yeah. So annoying. And so I did hypnobirthing because I think I was feeling a bit anxious. But I didn't want to make a birth plan. I was like, I'm not going to feel disappointed about this or negative about this. It was hard. I mean, I, it was painful in that way that birth is, which is a bit sort of different to being punched in the head repeatedly for no apparent reason this is like pain to then get something that you sort of wanted so I didn't have a birth plan but I did know I wanted to try and have him in water you know I was really keen I just sort of the ideal would be to be in this you know the Beyonce room it was called which is just amazing to me. um and you know I chose my birth color sort of a little bit like my all my hippie sort of beliefs are which is a bit like lol you know like crystals sure, lol but also totally. like rub this crystal put it in my bra make sure it doesn't ever leave my side <laughs> just in case um yeah it was nice tim was a real champ actually his face was so lovely all the way through he was just so mesmerized and proud i could just see him being like that's my girl you know go on gil yeah and he got stuck for a while frank so it's very painful when he went back to back the moment where he came out into the water this guinness haired baby this little monkey mm. And for a moment, he just sort of floated there, which was really magical. And then the midwife was lovely. She sort of pushed him with her hand up onto my tummy. And then he he sort of did that thing, you know, that thing that you see in programs where he sort of went nuzzle, nuzzle, nuzzle up my chest. And then he just sort of looked at me. The sad thing is that my brain went, I'm meant to be feeling something. I'm meant to be feeling something. I'm meant to be feeling something like that. And I was like, oh, why am I doing that? Like, I didn't think oh, it's a baby, or wow, I just thought, yep, that was the, the result that I thought was going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> That's the obvious ending to this section of my life. But then they gave me this injection to get the placenta out, and they didn't really ask oh, yeah. me. And I would have happily birthed the placenta out, and all of a sudden, that gorgeous, beautiful oxytocin shine that was in the room all went to shit, and I felt like the most anxious I've ever felt in my whole life, the most paranoid I've ever felt in my whole life. And then the doctor came in and said, you've torn yourself from arse to, you know, vag or whatever. Oh, my God. And I was like, have I? You know, I couldn't feel anything because it's all numb, isn't it? It's all stretched. And I was like, oh, no. And then sort of straight out of that bubble, they were like, right, down to surgery. And it was like, I hadn't even held him and then you're gone. And it... This that sort of thing where you think, this is medical intervention, it is fine, this because I could have bled to death, fine. But at the same time, these people are so used to birthing kids every day, every day, that they forget that you just have just given birth. It's another day at the office for them, but it's not for yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, and I and I find that quite difficult because the birthing centre as well isn't medical intervention. The medical intervention comes when they have to call them. So you have all this sort of lovely talking about oh, you know, this and that, and the Beyonce room, and Tim was playing the hypnobirthing music, and then all of a sudden this man comes in who wasn't invited and goes, I need to stick a needle in your back, and you need to have... And then 10 minutes later, my legs are up, and I can't feel them, and I'm looking at my feet thinking, what is going on? And then there's this guy with this long needle and thread, like, sewing up my arsehole, and I was just like, 
Oh, God. And then, even worse, Laura, I lay down in the recovery and Tim, Tim had had him skin to skin and we're close family. I felt like that was good enough for Frank. You know, I never felt like, oh, I deprived him of anything. But this woman, this woman was putting her coat on. I was in the recovery area from surgery. And someone had obviously said to her, look, you need to go and get the colostrum out of this woman's breast. Like, she's just had surgery. The baby probably needs a little bit of sustenance. She came over to me. She didn't even say a single word. She took my breast out of my gown, squeezed it, took a syringe of yellow colostrum out of my boob. Nothing had ever come out of my boobs before. I was absolutely gone. terrifying. And then pushed it into my son's mouth. And she said, there you go. And I was like, we were so shocked. It was like... What the hell was that? And it, all those little things. I mean, that's not a little thing, but all those little things imprint on your relationship with your baby. And I think, again, it went into the mind tank, you know? It went into the little cells and it was like, I didn't breastfeed my baby, the first thing that it ever tasted. You know, that paranoia came back later in a different form. I didn't give him what he needed, you know? Bigger and bigger that thought grew. That, what you just described to me, is pure trauma. You're in pain, you get torn from your fanny to your bum hole, you're injected, yeah. your baby is then taken out of you. You've just met that, the shock, the yeah. paranoia, the anxiety, and then your baby is something grabbed out of your tits by a stranger and then force-fed that to your <laughs> child. And you're just there thinking, with your legs, your, your feet up in the air. I know, and also it's sort of like, it's not a big deal. Everyone does it, and no one goes... Like, you just described it back to me, and it's like, that sounds horrific. But it's like, oh, yeah, that is what happened. And then what happened? Frank got on well, didn't he? Well, the first four months, he was fine. Although I, I, I don't know if that's true now. Now I keep thinking about him when he was really little. Was he fine, you know, or was he always... Because he'd just been diagnosed as having autism. And he was a lovely baby, really well-behaved, really just so... And when I look at photos of him now, I'm like, he is the ugliest thing I've ever seen in my whole life. Poor, my <laughs> poor friends, not. I was going, look at this beauty. And they were just like, that is an ugly baby. I mean, it's beautiful now. <laughs> but like, Jesus. You know when you just have that... I mean, you don't, because you had a terrible time straight away. But you look at your kids and you're like, fuck, they're cute. And then other people must just be like they're gross they are gross other when other people say to me like oh my kid blah blah, blah i think i hate your kid you know <laughs> not not a lot of kids are nice and everyone's like my kid's the best and you're like your kid is a bastard i hope none of my friends with kids are listening because i mean all of your kids um i was quite depressed i had i would call postnatal depression and, and did, I this, think it's, did this come on immediately would you say i had the baby blues you know like i was in hospital for a week frank was not well uh, he had a you know jaundice not too bad but my mum gave me this ridiculously strong arnica from her homeopath mm. and I passed like a instead of like bleeding just or like bleeding a bit I'd like stopped bleeding then all of a sudden passed like an apple shaped blood clot and I think it had just been really efficient at kind of congealing all the blood <laughs> and then it was just like oh Jesus um I've just um birthed a, a, a Brayburn apple and the woman was like, that's a fucking blood clot. I was like, sure, it's not that's a twin. A, a baseball of blood. <laughs> yeah, it was really brutal. It looked like a beetroot. You know, like a pickled beetroot. Anyway, <laughs> so I had to stay in. I was having a really lovely time. I was struggling to breastfeed. I find that very difficult. I didn't do it for very long. I was lonely and I didn't feel like I was coping. I didn't feel like I was good at it. I didn't really like Tim. I felt that he wasn't the partner I should have chosen. I think we both probably felt like that by this point. So, yeah, I, it was just a bit of depression, really. But I think that's so normal. I didn't know who I was. Like, I kept looking in the mirror and being like, 
who am I? Like, I've dyed my hair brown because I'd not wanted to bleach my hair because I didn't want to hurt my baby, which is a lie anyway. And then I I wasn't washing because I was like, I don't want to put any smells on myself that aren't my smell because he won't know who I am, you know. So I'm like, when I think of it now, there's some really strange behaviour going on there. And like, I mustn't, mustn't, I had to be silent. You know, I had to be silent and just weird stuff. And um, then he got ill at four months old started having seizures. I'd never seen anything like it. it. And I still, it haunts me to this day, the look on his face. You know, like you get those stress balls that have eyes that you can squeeze and then the eyes sort of slightly pop out. You know what I mean? Like yep, kids' toys yep, and you squeeze yep, them and the, you totally. see the water inside. It was like that. It was like almost like his eyes were just nearly popping out and then back again. It was so scary looking and so like a sci-fi film, like a like ghoulish, you know? You know, it lasted for a day or so, and I was like, this isn't right. Like, he was making a little bit of noise when it happened and stuff. So we took him to the doctor, and the doctor was like, he's having seizures, so we have to send him to the hospital. And I was like, this is seizure. I remember thinking, like, but a seizure's like a convulsion. She was like, no, no, sure. no, a seizure is a specific thing that happens in your brain, a surge of electricity in the brain. And Tim and I were still thinking, oh seizures must have an allergic reaction to something and then I remember MRI then the one where they stick all the things to your head and they and an EEG it's called and I know now that normally they look like you know a bit like a heartbeat monitor but with lots of different pens going up and down on a piece of graph paper and normal brain waves they look like lots of individual lines of wavy lines and Frank's was almost like when I watched it it was sort of almost just doing like a crazy sort of all over the place like a scribble like a child scribble and thinking to myself the machine must be broken and me saying to the woman that doesn't look right and her saying I can't say anything because I'm not a doctor because she was only doing the EEG and I remember thinking that is not good news and then I remember saying to the guy who'd come in to tell us that he had West syndrome and us just being like rabbits in headlights I remember holding Tim's hand so tightly and just being like this can't be real this can't be real and then me saying to him okay I get everything you're saying but I just want to ask one really simple question is this really serious or not serious and he looked at me dead in the eye and he was like this is extremely serious and I just remember thinking oh my god like he's gonna die I think we just both were in shock for about 24 hours I mean, it's the same with any parent who has an ill child. It is the most alien, traumatic, it's such grief. And I can't even imagine what it's like if to lose a child. But, you know, it is like somebody punching you in the throat, the heart and the head at the same time and then just continuously doing it and you having to just be like, okay, I'll just walk to my car whilst this person's punching me in the throat. I'll just try and sleep while this person... You know what I mean? It's so very strange and that was that it was then we lived in the world of the you know lived in the kingdom of the sick for six months longer than he would had been alive from the outside you know i remember hearing that you had had frank and you're in tim's journey you know doing the show together and just getting all the accolades and plaudits that it completely earned and deserved and touring and i get these messages from you like we're in australia now like this 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 and then Mm. then for your baby to be unwell it it's kind of that thing that happens like in the animal kingdom I suppose where this kind of thing of sorrow for everybody we all it rippled you know everybody felt that for you but I had no idea 
to the level that you had suffered. But then also you were living alone, weren't you, at the time in that cottage? How did that come about and what was that like? Well, when Frank got ill, Tim and I had been arguing so much. We'd reached a bit of a plateau and I think we'd both gone like, okay, do we actually want to be together? I think we got to the point where we were like, yeah, we do. You know, everyone says don't split up in the first year, for God's sake, it's not real life, it will get better. And then Frank got ill and we started to argue again and I think both of us were just like, no way can we do this at the same time. You know, like, we can't be arguing about towels and driving to hospital. So he moved to his mum's, which was, you know, a couple of villages along. It was horrible. And it was really brutal for both of us. But he obviously had his mum and I didn't have anybody. But also I was doing that thing of like, I'm absolutely fine. Like I'd prefer to be, I would, to be honest, I did prefer to be on my own because I'd rather just get my head down. But, you know, you're talking about measuring probably 28 different doses of four different drugs each day. A child that's on steroids is like waking up every hour to give them milk and them screw like so angry and so the personality changes very much on steroids you know like it does for anyone that's on roids like it's totally makes you really mad and so he'd gone from a still peaceful like seal pup to this sort of like a gremlin you know I started to see the house as something that it wasn't you know like I started to look at it like it was a haunted house and what it looked like changed for me it's like a lens dropped over it and it was haunted and creepy and fairy taley and it had been such a hopeful place and then it suddenly the winter came and it felt so dark this is the first thing I thought made me realize that I was going a bit mad was that I thought Frank was a changeling even the word changeling makes me feel anxious now that someone had come in the front door when I was asleep and swapped him out I mean he looked different he acted different and then I started to feel like I didn't love him as much you know and I was like, oh, God, this isn't my child. I'll feed it and I will look after it, but I won't give it as much love as my own. I will put all that love I have for Frank in a box until he comes back. And then I was sort of speaking to someone. She, you know, not far off had had her own baby and her own trauma. And I remember set, sort of slightly describing that to her. And she was like, what do you mean? And I was like, well, you know, when they came and swapped him out. And I think she was a bit like, okay. And then she checked on me a lot, actually, after that. But I remember thinking, hearing her say sort of, oh, okay. I was like, oh, yeah, no, that that's crazy. So because other people have been a bit like, are you all right? I, I sort of just went, I'm just going to shut the door now and not speak to anyone. Because I don't know quite what's going on, but I don't want anyone else to know. Mm. And then the spiders came and then... Do you remember the first time you saw the spider? Or had you seen the spiders you spoke about in your childhood or... I, I don't know, this is going to sound really crazy, but I think I have a bit of a sixth sense for spiders because I can feel them before I see them, which is, it can't be real, but it could be, you know, who knows? I, I think the first time was I'd seen three spiders in the bedroom and I'd killed each of them and then been like, they're all trying to take Frank away. They've come to take him away. And I remember staying up all night that night and being like, they're not having him. Like, no way are they having him. And I think that was the moment that I, when I, the next morning I was like, that was crazy. But I still didn't go to the doctors. There's something about you, isn't there, that's such a, like, streak, a trait, which is incredible, which is that you are a woman of your own power. Like, you are so strident and you're always on a crusade, whether it be your career or anything. And that is what I've always been like, wow about. Like, that is so bloody cool, how you just do it all on your own. And then... 
actually realise the bravest thing a person can do is ask for help. Oh my God, totally. Totally. Like, I've got a new partner who's really great and I've spent, you know, five years really being messed up about love after everything that happened and really having terrible relationships, no offence, terrible men, and suddenly felt like I was out of the trauma and suddenly found this amazing guy. You know, I still find it very hard, but I can be like, I feel feel really anxious today and I feel like I'm going to be a bit snappy. So I want to say to you that I'm feeling really anxious and that, you know, I'm feeling a bit spidery and, you know, whatever it is. And and he'll go, okay, cool. And then, you know, every now and then he'll put his arm around me and say, you know, I really love you, you're brilliant and don't forget that. And, you know, you're like, oh, this is what it's like to be open about your emotions. This would have been so much easier if I'd have just gone... I'm feeling very unwell, but for some reason, that's a sign of weakness in my brain and that you have to cope, you have to do it by yourself. I don't know, it was very unhealthy. The thing that's always served me really didn't serve me and I've had to spend a long time unpicking that part of my personality that I can't be seen to fail, that I can't be seen as weak. It's not healthy. And so I set myself insane instead of feeling weak. How did you end up going to ask for help in the end? Because I remember you saying that you literally crawled to the doctors. Is that right? Yeah, I crawled to the doctors. But it felt like dragging, you know, like, um, what's it called? Prostrating. I mean, depression. I just had it for, I, I mean, I go through bouts, but I've just had a really like almost debilitating when I've been in bed for a few days and it's just teetering on the edge of being very unwell which is good I know what to do and I've stopped it from being that but it does feel like you're sort of wading through syrup it's like oh let's get myself to the doctors you know really crawl even if you're just walking around it feels like that Was that the first time you had gone to the doctors and said that you didn't feel well in yourself? Yeah. I think I'd been at Tim's house dropping off Frank and I sort of collapsed on the floor crying and I remember him saying, you're not ill, get up. And I remember thinking, oh my God, I am really ill. I've got to go to the doctors. I just want to paint this image for listeners who haven't seen the show. In I'm a Phoenix Bitch at the start, you present yourself as this heightened, beautiful version of yourself with a wig and a glittery gold dress, like a showgirl. Mm -mm. And then you have this other character of yourself with a blunt, choppy fringe, lifting weights, being a powerhouse. And in the show, you need both of these characters to get through. After going through what you've gone through, are you either of these women? (laughs) (laughs) I'm only really just getting to know myself, Laura. Like, I feel like... A lot of my behaviours are are defence mechanisms and, you know, I have a very strong armour and I'm very conditioned and I think I'm very different to what I think I am. I'm very home-centric, I'm very quiet, I'm very geeky. I'm just finding that I'm, yeah, neither of those ladies. I think we become different people as we grow up, you know, I... I've probably been all of those ladies and I think I'm also a different person each time I'm in a different week of my period cycle. So I actually find it really confusing to think of who I am. It sort of spins me out. If you try to sort of think of who you are, decant yourself into a description. Yeah, I don't know who I am. Who knows? 
I, think I mean, I'm getting there. talking about the therapy is so incredible because you never. This is really cliche. I'm so sorry. Why is this not on a mug in Clinton's? It probably is. But someone said to Clint. me not too long ago, "You only fix the roof when it's raining. You never fix the roof when the sun is shining." Not about me, just as a line. Yeah. And it for some reason it just caught me because it was like a nice day and the leaves were on the floor or something, and I was like. That's really true. I am still thinking about you. When you said that crawl to the doctors, you're also crawling back to that person of yourself mm. that you had before you had a baby, mm -mm. before you threw this life bomb into yourself and exploded and can't get back. And the grief is grieving of who you once yeah, were. Yeah, you miss that you person. Can't access. You miss the time, you miss what she was into, what made her tick, how quick she could come back with comments, what she would order at a bar. Yeah. You can't find her anymore. You were your own rescue team. Yeah. I always wanted to write something that was about a woman who gets into trouble and gets herself back out of it again, because that is, you know, it's not something that you see that often and not something that you hear about when you're a child. And I remember sitting in the cottage and thinking, where is he? What, you know, not even Tim really, but like, what's going to happen? Who's going to save me? And then being like, oh, shit. Oh, shit, Fuck, bitch. It's going to be me. Yeah. And... I think I say at the end, I'm, I'm going to be new Bryony now. I don't like her as much. She doesn't quite fit. She's all scarred and charred and she doesn't, doesn't laugh half as much as she used to, but she's who I'll need when the flood comes again. And you can take old Bryony with you too. She'll always be there. Showing you just how beautiful life was before the first trauma. And you think, oh my God, I was such a fool, you know. So emotional being a mother, isn't it? It's so emotional. It's like un it unbelievable. Really yeah, it's about it's amazing, and but it's also very terrifying. It's such a shame that you have to find out about being mentally unwell on your own. That you have to get there by yourself. That you have to find out when that roof is ripped open and the storm is yeah. gushing in, and that's how you got to find out. And that's what I was going to say to you. One of the questions I always get asked is, I'm not going to have a baby again because there's 50% chance of me getting my illness again, which is a whole other thing. I mean, it's a mm. one of those Russian dolls where it's like a woman inside another woman inside another woman inside. Because <laughs> I, what's 50% chance of anybody getting ill ever anyway? Yeah, anyway, you can get ill from anything, you know. I've been asked before, you know, if I was to have another baby, would I want Jet to see me unwell? And that's the one thing that I'm like, absolutely not. My only saving thing that I've had is that he was so tiny. It was so bombastic and huge, my illness. It was all taken care of and all these little carers had to scamper in and clean it all up before he even knew it had even happened, like little magic fairies. Obviously, the truth is dragging yourself out of hell, but you mm. do have to do that. But I'm so grateful as a mum that I can now pass on and educate my son about mental health and illness and know that he can keep the spiders at bay and not be scared of the spiders and know that they're warning signs, alarms. Do you feel that having that experience has informed you as a mum and will, I mean, I know Frank's had his own... Slightly, it's slightly different for me. I always find I'm in having a parallel universe mothering experience that only a few select few stressed out special needs mums will understand. It's slightly different because I'm never going to probably sit down with him and talk about mental health. He's not that child, you know. But I have a stepchild and of course I will always be brutally honest about things age appropriately. And with my nieces I am and, you know, with everybody I, I would encourage them to do that. But I think as a society we're becoming really 
good at that. I don't think our children will suffer like we suffered because I just don't think it's possible. It's something just distinctly Victorian about it, which is it's going to be over soon. As soon as I do find it, as soon as someone says something, the world does change pretty quick, you know. I have faith that once a few whistleblowers go, hang on a minute, this is fucking ridiculous. I mean, how are we not talking about (laughs) mothers and mental health? And like, how did we not see that drawing milk from my breast might have actually sent me completely loopy? Uh, Yeah, so I think we have to have faith that the world does change. Um, I'm a distinctly positive person trapped inside a negative person's (laughs) body. (laughs) I mean, of course, I parent very differently than I would have done. Uh, not just because he has special needs, but because I have a depth of feeling and reserve that I think having fallen into the depths of despair gives you, if you're willing to face it and not just then go, oh, fucking hell, I'm glad I don't have to go back to being depressed again. Uh, that really didn't happen. Or, ooh, we don't talk about that. If you really go there and you interrogate it, then you become a sage for other people's use. And you can be that witch that goes... I've been there, I understand it, and it's time for me to impart this knowledge that I have gathered to you. But you'd hope at some point soon that is what you get given when you get pregnant. You know, you get given a nappy cake, but you also get given a handbook that someone passes you under the table that sort of says all the things that could possibly go wrong and how to solve them. And a packet of antipsychotics. Yeah, and some fags. uh, And what has Frank taught you? (laughs) God, how to love, how to, oh, God, what a question. Why did you ask me that question? Oh, what's he taught me? Oh, I can't think of the words. Um, Frank has taught me how to love. Yeah, how to love. <laughs> I'm crying. I can't think of anything else. <laughs> I don't know. It's so weird. It's like... um. I'm not religious, but I think he was a good child for me to be sent to me because I'm a good special needs mum. He's a wonderful person and I think I deserved an autistic child because I would be one of the best people to give him a good life, you know. I'm so happy that he's my little boy and I think we'll do great things together, you know, for neurodiversity and for him as a person. That is beautiful. Oh, I thought I wasn't. I thought I'd get through this without shedding a tear. I actually did hold back a lot what I thought I was going to do. Like I parmesan shaved my tears. I parmesan shaved them because I was ready to full blow blocks of feta on you. <laughs> um, I parmesan shaved my tears. Before we finish, I just want to say thank you because I remember asking you if I should write this book or not, and I remember you saying, <sighs> "How old would he be?" And when it comes out, and I said he'd be two, and you went, "You'll be fine by then." And I just didn't believe you. I was just like, yeah, maybe other people get fine. Maybe you get fine, Bryony, but I'm not going to be fine. <laughs> and I'm fine, in fact. And you were? I'm fine. Yeah, I'm better than fine. I've mm. learned so much from this. You know, I feel actually plugged into the world now. Mm. I get it now. Mm. Mm, I know. I don't think you would have had that if you had not had a traumatic time, darling. And sometimes these things are sent to make us better people and better mothers and better partners. And it's sad, but I do view it as... The bumps in the road is what life is. The plateaus are like gifts, but the bumps are the things that make us who we are. And I think it's important to remember that there's value in those things. And if you listen to them, they'll teach you something. And if you try and hide them, they'll fuck you up again and again until they're just going, excuse me, will you fucking listen? 
thank you for giving me this time and um oh my pleasure your real talk i love it thank you if you have been affected by any of the themes in this program head to the episode description for resources and helplines zombie mum was produced by b duncan with original music by hugo white it was mastered by rob fincham the executive producer was hannah walker brown this is a broccoli production Next week, I'm talking to Nikesh Shukla. Here's a sneak peek from our conversation. I find this idea that parents don't see colour difficult because it ultimately means that parents just see everyone as white. You know, we have to push up against the defaultness of whiteness. In order for us to do that, parents need to see colour and they need to curate accordingly. <laughs>